It's amazing how contentment is something I think is a desire for all people of all ages. Over a hundred years ago, J.C. Ryle wrote, two things are said to be very rare sights in the world. Very rare. One is a young man humble, and the other is an old man content. I fear this saying is only too true, he wrote. Almost 400 years, even before that, the Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs wrote of the rare jewel of Christian contentment. You would think Christians would begin to major on this over the centuries. Recently, in his book, The Progress Paradox, How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse, Greg Easterbrook shows that while life in the Western world has dramatically improved over the last several decades, the level of happiness and contentment has declined. This isn't just anecdotally. This is actually through um, research. And he writes, we live in an age of discontent. And I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul, some 2,000 years ago, as we've been reading in this letter written to people who live in the city of Philippi, this kind of outpost of the Greek world, really an outpost of, of the Roman world with regard to it being a place where many Roman soldiers would, would actually go there and retire, and it became kind of a, a Roman colony. That he would be writing to these people in that place about contentment, which is basically the things that we've been studying. This idea of joy combined with a sense of peace. And it's what you find in, in a life, we're told, that if we are walking and living and getting to know the God of the universe who has revealed Himself through Jesus and you develop this relationship with Him, one of the things that is to be growing in our lives as we read about fruits that grow is love, joy, peace are the first three. So in a sense, one of the things that should be showing up in the lives of every person who would in some way raise their hand and say, yeah, I, I, I want to know this, this God. In fact, I have opened my heart to Him. I am seeking to walk with Him. should be a greater sense of contentment. Now, when we talk about contentment, this was a really important word, not just today or the last three, four hundred years, but all throughout history. Paul himself is speaking about it, and we're going to find a little bit later that the word he uses is a very important word in that day. And philosophers would speak a lot about this idea of contentment. And so I think Paul, as he comes to the end of this letter, which is the last in this series called Advantage Joy, he ends it with something that's very relevant to them as he's been speaking about joy. And then we looked at last week, he begins to combine that with the idea of peace, which is really the word contentment. And he, in a sense, redefines it and shares the secret of contentment. So if you look at these verses, you'll see, beginning in verse 10, He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. At last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. See, it wasn't until Epaphroditus came with some gifts that he realized that he was really cared for, that people really cared for him in the churches that he had been. He's in Rome, he's in prison, and even the people in Rome have somewhat deserted him at that point, even some of the believers and things that are going on. So he's not in the best of situations. So he's saying, thank you for sharing the gift. He's writing back to them. And he's going to give this letter to Epaphroditus, who will send it back to Philippi. He's hoping Timothy will go with. 
He's giving up the one person who is really loyal at his side in order to bring this letter back. And he says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned, here it is, the secret of being content. How many of you could say that you've learned the secret of being content? I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the Gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving or receiving except you only. He was taking offerings and he was asking for this offering to go back to Jerusalem where people were in um, drought, dire conditions under persecution. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. He left Philippi to go to Thessalonica. In that city, he was under um, all kinds of persecution. Um, they threw him out of the city and yet they were sending along gifts. Not that I desire gifts. What I desire is more that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. You've given me all that I need. And you don't, owe, you don't owe me a thing, he says. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to, to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. And to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send me greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that in these few moments you would take some of these thoughts and help us to really understand you ourselves, and what it means to live in a way that's loving and in your love and guided by your hand. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing, you know, when you think about the secret of contentment, as I look at this passage, I'm going to share with you a few thoughts. And the first thing that, that just pops out at you is contentment is learned. If you really want to understand the secret of knowing what it means to be content, you have to understand that it's something that is learned. He says, I'm not saying this because I need, but I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. So he says it there and he wants to kind of drill this in. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content. And the word he uses in verse 11 is the word of the idea of learning through experience because of the things that have happened in his life. He basically says, I've learned. This is not book taught. This is not something that I went to school to learn and, and, and came out with some kind of course. In fact, this is not something that is, you know, because I score high on the strength finders test in positivity that comes natural to me. This is not something that merely people who just somehow they just get it and they kind of live it and some people get it and some don't. He's saying, no, through life, whether you're eating at Manny's Steakhouse or you're eating, he says, you know, bread on the run, stale bread often for him. Whether he's staying in a Four Seasons or he's actually under a bridge with a rock for a pillow. It's kind of literally what he's saying. I've learned both these circumstances. And guess what? In both of those, 
I'm really content, internally content. Now, I think if you had the choice, you'd probably do the Four Seasons in the Manny Steakhouse, right? But what he's saying is, I don't need those things. That does not govern and rule my life. My sense of feeling content, that sense of joy and peace is not determined by that which is outside of me. In fact, I have learned over time through the circumstances that have come in my life to begin to understand what it means for me to be content. Because it's something that's learned. And he says this throughout this whole book in this letter that he's writing. He says at one point in verse 12 of chapter 2, continue to work out your salvation. This idea that you need to be intentional. That if you are in a relationship with God, you've opened your heart to God. He has given you the gift of His Holy Spirit because of Jesus and, and the relationship He gives you. He gives you this gift and He is basically saying continue to work out. And the word He uses to work out means like working out a mathematical equation to get the sum of it. It's the same word that's used in a mining situation. It's the idea of working out that when you go into the mind, you get all the ore out of it that's possible to be gotten out of that mind. Or it's used also in the working of a field of a farmer, where the farmer takes and he plants all the seed and he brings out the fullness of the harvest. He's basically saying to the people, be intentional about these things. And one of the things you can be intentional about is the development of joy and peace in your life, which is really contentment. Because God has placed the seeds of that in your heart and your life so that it can grow into the fruit. But it's not going to happen unless you, with intent, seek to do that. So then he gives some other things as he's going along in this passage. In verse 17 of chapter 3, he says, Join with following my example. The word means to actually imitate. It means to mimic. We've talked about this a few weeks ago. The idea is just like a child that learns to begin to walk by watching or begins to talk by listening and seeing that or begins to use, you know, um, develop writing by tracing over letters. He says, what I want you to do is to look at my example find an example and begin to trace your life around what you see that's good in that person. In fact, he even becomes very explicit in verse 9 of chapter 4. And once again, he brings up this idea that he's learned through experience and he wants those people to learn through their experience and to actually intentionally do what they can to build this into their life. So he says in verse 9, Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, which is, a, I mean, that's a pretty audacious thing. What you see... If he is, I stand up here before you, which I should be able to do, which you, as, as if you're maturing in your relationship with Christ, to some degree you should be able to say, watch me and do this. With any sense of integrity. That's what parents do, right? That's hopefully if you're running a, a business, you can say, if you're the CEO or you're in a management position, you should be able to say to your employee, watch me and do what I do. Hopefully you're doing that. Paul's saying that if you want contentment, if you want to experience this joy and peace, this fruit that grows in your life, then follow me. Do this. Mimic. Trace. Put it into practice. That's one of the things that I'm seeking to learn in my life. Character is about practicing certain things and doing it again and again and again so that it becomes a part of who you are. Character for us as a church so that when people will come in here and they'll go, you know what? There is something unmistakably joyful about this people who come together. There's something that I, I come into this place and there's a peace that I'm just not sure. What is this about? It's because God resides in peaceful, joyful people's hearts. So how do you do that? 
You learn through the experiences that come in your life. God begins to test you, but you also intentionally put some things into practice. So as we come to the end of this whole series, I did a series back in, in December on joy, and now we've done about three months on joy. We've put these little things on our wrists to remind us to be joyful. We did it in May. We took the verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, which are these verses on here, be joyful, pray continuously. And we talked about giving thanks. I'm going to encourage you to not stop these practices. I'm going to ask you to intentionally do some things. And you can write these down. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to plead with you. I can hear Paul pleading with you to practice these things. First, when you awake in the morning, look up Psalm 118, verse 24. Memorize it. When you awake in the morning, one of the first things you can say to yourself is, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. I will make a commitment today to live in joy. So one of the first things I ask you to do make a practice is just say, when you awake in the morning, you will say, because how many wake up real? You know, I have a daughter who wakes up like sunshine and happy. How many wake up that way? How many wish someone in your family woke up that way? Every day. Another thing I'm going to encourage you to do. Uh, a good thing to do is, is to journal, to write things down. But if you don't do this, if you just take some time to just on, on your hand, take with three fingers, say, I will be thankful and just list them and think about that and list that and be thankful about the next thing and list the next thing and allow that to govern your day. Thanksgiving is the doorway into a place of praise, into a place of blessing. And if you begin to practice that, if you actually do that day after day, week after week, I can share with you as I shared before, I've been doing that for the last couple of years and it has made a difference in my outlook in life. It will make a difference in your life. In difficulty, as we said back in December, when things are really bad, your basement is flooded and the trees have fallen down around your house and there's roof tiles that have been knocked off, right? Anybody had that kind of thing happen lately? You look at it and you say, it could be worse. And you begin to live with that expression in your heart. Another thing that you can do throughout your day is just to continue, get something like this that marks it and go, you know what, Jesus is with me. I can be joyful. I can talk to him. I can be thankful even now it could be worse. These are practices that you establish that actually make a difference in your character. And then find one, someone. I would encourage you, probably a really good thing is that Paul says, find someone you can imitate, someone who is joyful, someone who seems to work contentment in their life and just say, could I just have lunch with you every, like once a month? I'm serious about that. Find someone that you, as you look at their life, there seems to be this contentment. There's joy and peace. And, and just say, can I have lunch with you? And then just begin to understand how that was developed and built into their heart and life. So the first is this. Contentment is learned. The second is this. And this is not something you just learn once. It's something that you learn throughout your life. It's just experiences that come up with your life. Contentment is about needs. It's about understanding what you need. Contentment is about the fulfillment of your needs, not your wants. Paul is very clear in this verse 11. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learned a secret in any and every situation. Contentment is not about what's going on out here. It's about what's going on in here. If your soul is in a place of peace and joy, 
If the basic needs of who you are in your being are met, you can experience contentment. Some of you have so much plenty. You could stand up and be the first to say it doesn't take care of the wants, right? Because you can have a lot of plenty. It's, it's like that book I referenced in the beginning. The more that we get, the less happier we are. The more we want, the more we get, the more you've got to take care of. On and on it goes. He says if you're in that place of want, you can live and should live, not in a place where you want more, but where you can be content with the basic needs of your heart and life being met. But the difficulty is in our culture where we live out in the western suburbs, it's just really easy because life is dynamic and life changes for the wants to begin to start taking over again. And he also says in those places of need, sometimes when you come to that place of need, it just strips you down to the place you go, God, this is what I understand life to be about. So one of the great things about contentment is coming to this place of understanding. It is really about your needs. Contentment is about wanting what you have and then being thankful for it. Not wanting what you don't have and being envious and upset that you don't have it. Or working yourself to the bone to get it. Now, one of the things people say, well, if you're just content, does that mean you just don't have any drive? No. What it means always is you try to understand what is driving you. Because a lot of times the things that drive you, if you think about it, I know this was true in my life and in my case, that when I was in our younger years, and still you fight with this, what you, when, especially when you're younger, you start out your life and you kind of want the same home your parents had that it took them 40 years to get to. And you want to drive the same car they're driving. And so you've got to ask yourself, what drives you? What drives us in our life today? All you have to do is turn on the TV. They have people who are the most skilled people in the world. Some of the brightest people in the world going to Harvard are sitting around figuring out, or going to Yale, or going to Stanford, or all these different places. They're trying to figure out how they can get you to want more, so that you can buy more. And then you can stimulate our economy and get things going again. No. There's some basic questions to ask, and that question is this. Who determines what I need? Are you being driven because you know that for yourself to feel well, your identity is in something outside of you? So if you could drive a certain car, have the certain job, have the certain title, you know, have the certain family living in the suburbs with 2.3 kids, then you'd be good. There's a series of questions that you've got to ask yourself right now at this moment. Do I have all I need? Could you say that? Do I truly believe God will supply what I need when I need it? Am I open to go without? Am I open to go without when God determines I need to do so? Am I willing to give away what I want in order to help meet someone else's need? And really the million dollar question under all this is who has clarity on what I need versus what I want? Who has clarity on what I need versus what I want? David found that it was only Jesus, it was only God, really, in, in his Old Testament understanding. In Psalm 23, verse 1, he says, is the Lord. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Like a shepherd, as he's looking at the flock that he takes care of, he knows what they need. He knows when they need to move them to another pasture. He knows when he needs to get them by some quiet streams of water. But what's really interesting is then that first line, it tells the rest of it. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not what? Want. Or some of the King James versions say, I shall not lack. Do you know what the Hebrew actually means? 
I shall experience nothing as missing. The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall experience nothing as missing. I have him. Paul puts it a different way in verse 19. He says, and my God will meet, and you can underline this, all your needs. All your needs. So who clarifies? Who best determines what you need? And then as you think about this, if it is true, then that contentment is not about something out here. It is based in a relationship with God. It's based in a relationship where you know this God loves you and cares for you and will provide for you when you need what you need. Now you get the real secret of contentment. Contentment is learned through experience, and through experience God teaches you, and you begin to understand what you really want versus what you need, and it doesn't take away your drive. It helps you clarify your drive so that you move into a place where you start saying, you know, contentment, if I'm going to have contentment, is really about knowing and understanding myself in relationship to this God who has made me, and I begin to realize I need Him, and I will find His abundance. It will be, my contentment will be in the God of abundance. It's a really important concept is to recognize and then believe it as being true that this God of abundance will truly provide my needs and he knows my needs better than me. Paul makes a statement throughout this passage. He says he locates his his joy and his peace always in his relationship with God in Christ. He says in verse 26 of chapter one, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow. Not in what you got going around you. Finally, he says in verse chapter 3, verse 1, My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In chapter 4, verse 4, he wants to get this point across again. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, forever. And now when he comes to verse 10, I think it's interesting. Before he mentions anything about their gift, he doesn't want them to get confused that somehow their gift made him feel content. He basically says in verse 10, before he even gets the gift, he says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. In a sense, he's saying, I found my comfort first in God. And guess what? When I found my comfort in God, a little bit later, your gift came as a token of his expression of love and his abundance. And so he goes on and he shares that and he says that he's learned this contentment. And what he's learned most of all through all these experiences is that as he's trusted in this fact that God is sufficient and will care for him. He says in verse 11, I can endure all things through Christ as he gives me strength in anything, whether it be when I'm in these times of need, God is there for me. He is with me. Even though I might have questions and I might process and I might not understand and I might even cry out and say, God, I really need this. And he goes, well, not yet. Anybody been there? I really want you to come through for me in this, God. I mean, I really need this job. God, I really need this relationship to feel this oneness. God, I really need my, my child. And God says, you know what? Not yet. I'm teaching you something. Now, we get this verse, verse, verse 13, a little bit messed up. We, we read it sometimes, and some versions say, I can do anything or everything through Christ who gives me strength, which in a sense is right, but it's kind of more like the Superman verse. You know, I can just do anything. It's not really what he's saying. He's saying, because I know and my relationship is in this God who is abundant, who knows my needs, I can stand in this situation knowing that God will strengthen me moment by moment as I lean on Him. 
Now, it doesn't mean that God can't give you what you need. There are sometimes he can give you more than you need to meet a situation. He can give David a sling and a stone that can that can slay a giant. He shows up in, in, in Jesus and does a resurrection. God will do the things that need to be done through you. Yes, He can do anything and everything. But what He's really talking about here is the person who is living in this abundant relationship with this God of abundance, who as He lives in that knows that He can find strength in the midst of the difficulty, in the midst of the waiting, that in His waiting, and as you continue to move it on, God will refine what you need and give you what you need and will provide it when you need it. So is Jesus Christ, is He someone you believe who can give you all you need? Do you believe that God knows everything you need to live on in life? The word content, I said I would kind of explain it, means self-sufficient. And would have been very familiar to the people in that day around Greek-Roman philosophy. It was a word used often by Stoic philosophers. The idea of Stoicism is an idea that they use kind of that you, you, you kind of are not controlled at all by your emotions. In fact, they, you'll use a word like a rock. If you don't think of Stoic philosophy, it's kind of like this rock. And the Stoics' primary goal in life was to be content, or what they would call self-sufficient. And they were trying to work out ways that would be true in their life, versus the one who would be you know, completely into pleasure and trying to find their contentment through more pleasures and, and finding the experience where their emotions are continually satisfied on the other side, was how do you control this emotion? How do you become so self-contained and so self-sufficient that you don't need anything? In fact, you are in control of your emotions and in the way they began to realize that you could truly be content, self-sufficient, they knew it was a state of mind, and they realized that your mind was the battlefield, and the way you would do it was become absolutely independent of anything and everything and of any person. You would live in such a way that you would actually eliminate desire. Because your desires obviously got you in, control, in trouble. So, like, if you're watching the NHL Finals, you know, in that Stanley Cup, if you really like the Chicago Blackhawks, a good Stoic would not really like them. They would just kind of observe. So then if they won, they wouldn't get excessively joyful. And if they lost, you wouldn't be disappointed. Right? It's what I've learned through experience being a Chicago Cub fan. You know? One of their philosophers, Epictetus, he gave this advice on how you can be content. Self-sufficient. He said, and I'll quote this, on, on the secret of contentment, he wrote, begin with a cup or a household utensil. Remember last week, I, like my grill? If it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. If you go on long enough, this is quote, this is what he's saying, and if you try hard enough, you will come to a stage when you can watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. Now, they're hearing the word contentment and Paul is changing its meaning on them. That's not what Paul's after. The Stoics said the secret of contentment was controlling one's desire. And by doing so, you would never experience this disappointment or sorrow. On the other hand, never have ex excessive joy. And today, we'd call a person like that what? Norwegian. Right? No, okay. Maybe, maybe German, I don't know. Paul isn't saying that. 
Paul wants you to live life to the fullest. He wants you to be connected. He wants you to be in relationship where you're vulnerable. You're, you're willing to trust. You're willing to be in that place where you work together and develop that and communicate and, and you experience the joys and you experience the sorrows. He even said at one point, if, if Epaphroditus would die, I wish he had an easier name, if, if Pap would die, he would feel sorrow upon sorrow. So, so Paul, when his contentment is not saying eliminate desire, he's trying to teach something very important to you and to me. And that is that in relationship to this God of abundance, you can recognize as He regulates your life, you can begin to see when those experiences happen. You experience emotions, but you know they're not the end. They're not where you're going to live. It's not what you've got to be in all your life. This God will be there abundant for you. So that when David at one point says, the Lord is my shepherd, and in this experience I will miss nothing. I have everything around me I need. God is so loving and so abundant and so good that He provides them to go into these green places where the fresh grass is and to these still waters where there are potential um, enemies around her that He guards and watches. And He brings them all the way through that. At one point He says, My cup runneth over. This God is so good and so abundant and so rich and so full that as I walk with Him and as I journey with Him, He gives me this abundance, this abundance that just keeps flowing. Now, what I think is interesting is that people sometimes when they try and illustrate what this is like, they'll use a pitcher and a cup, right? And they'll say, my cup runneth over. And they'll take this pitcher and they'll start pouring the water until it begins to overflow and go, oh, isn't that neat? That's how God is. And the focus is on the, is on the cup running over. That's what it's like. But here's what I want you to focus on. That's not a good picture. Get rid of the pitcher. The pitcher is just something that will empty out at some point. Think of it this way. What if it was like a spring? Anybody ever been and seen a spring? There are about a dozen of these springs along the roadsides in Minnesota. There was one that a farmer found back in 1914, and he used it as his, it was his, his well. And in the 1930s, when the drought hit, the, you know, the dust bowl hit, it went dry, supposedly. Well, in 1938, when they were excavating the road, they nicked the pipe and water just burst out of it. So they piped it and it just keeps running. It's been running since 1938 today and it just gushes out. If you ever go to it, you want to at some point try and stop it. You kind of feel like, what a waste, all this abundance. It's just between Rockford and Buffalo, a place called Dickinson. Anybody ever been to that spring? Well, now you may go. Good, clean, fresh water. It just flows and 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 flows. You want to stop it and you can't. This is the God who loves you. This is the God who wants to be involved in your life on a daily basis. No matter what you go through, whether you have plenty or you have need or you have this lack or you have all this abundance, there is this God who is so richly abundant. Look at verse 19. He says in verse 19, he says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the glorious, this incredible glorious wealth that is in relationship to Jesus. I just want to live in that. I want us to live in that. And when you do, here's what happens. You begin to live life. Um, contentment is freeing. That's the other secret of the whole thing. 
it is it is what you learn through experience and you begin to understand what your needs are versus your wants, which is a lifelong process and it changes. But what doesn't change is this abundant spring, this this water of God that flows into your soul and makes you fresh no matter what experience occurs in your life, even though you may experience sorrow, even though joys come in. It so regulates your life that you begin to develop this sense of contentment. And when you have this abundance, you can move into this new place where you become a person of abundance. Contentment is freeing. So that when he's talking in 14 and 19 about how they shared, he's saying you're just getting the tip of the iceberg. You're understanding you're practicing, you're imitating, you're drawing about what you see in my life. I can so give away. I don't have to hoard. I don't have to hold. When there's a need, I can help meet it. And when God directs me to do it, I can do it. And I don't have to take the things that I own as my own, thinking that that's the only resource that's left. God has the abundance for me so that it's freeing and I can give. So that you can say... I see that, God. Do you want me to provide for that? Because he doesn't ask you to provide for everything. But I see that. And God, I'm praying about it. And God says, yeah, I want you to give something. And you go, oh, that's a lot. And he goes, that's okay. I'm abundant. Now, I've asked Devon to come up here to close the message. And, um, and Devon, did he show, share a killer illustration? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> set you up here, didn't I? I actually did set him up because I told him I wanted to share about Mongolia. What I really wanted to do was talk about this parking pavement, and I want you to know how grateful I am for Devon and the work that he does in this church over the last number of years. Father, we come before you with joy and peace, content because of who you are, and we are so grateful that you have provided. We thank you for this new parking lot. We ask that it would, be, it would be strong and firm and hold up for many years and that, God, it would be useful as a tool to help many people be touched by you in this place and then from the people who go from this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.